0: Acts chapter 1. We're starting a new phase in our Living Called Out series. Uh, We began in Genesis looking at the the people of God, the called out people of God. What what the call looked like, what it uh, looked like uh, to be the people of God. And we worked through the Old Testament, and then we got to the Gospels, and we looked at how uh, Jesus related to, to the called-out church. And, and we talked about how the, it was only called a church a couple of times in the Gospels. Uh, we, we looked at how uh, the, the, we're called a flock, and we're, we're uh, called a vine, and we uh, looked at how Jesus prayed for his church. Well, this morning, we begin a series. We're going to slow down. I, I was thinking of, uh, if you've ever been to, to Disney World and you've been on the, uh, the People Mover in Tomorrowland. It's uh, not the most thrilling ride, at least for speed, uh, but it's very enjoyable. One, because it's air-conditioned. Um, and two, it's just really interesting to see the, the, the plan for Disney World, or, or for Epcot especially. None of that has to do with wh- why I thought of it. I thought of it because if, when you're riding the People Mover, you're zipping through these areas, and then uh, as you, when you get outside to that section, it speeds up and it carries you along. But once it takes you in to look at something, or when it moves through the little circular thing to drop you off, it suddenly slows down. never stops moving, but it slows down. Well, in vision, if you will, that's what we're doing here with Acts. We've been moving rapidly through, I mean, we covered the Old Testament in a few months, we covered the Gospels in a couple of months, so we've been moving quick. Well, suddenly, we're about to hit the brakes. We're not going to stop, but we're going to slowly move through the entire book of Acts. Now, it's not going to be as slowly as what we're doing uh, on Sunday nights in Galatians. We're not going to take it quite to that detail that we're doing on Sunday night, but I, I encourage you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, to come on Sunday night and let here, not this Sunday night, not tonight, it will be dark and you'll be lonely uh, if you come tonight, but uh, next Sunday night we'll continue our look at Galatians, and we're—I mean—we're going almost word by word. This study through Acts, Acts is a narrative book. Galatians is very much uh, teaching, so you have to really pull out what Paul's saying. Narratives, you take it a, a bigger view of it, but we're still going to slow it down, and take it t- take it easy through here. Uh, Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11 is where we begin. First church, uh, this is the church's call in Acts, and that's what the entire book of Acts is about, is the church's call. It, it begins in, at the beginning, but the entire book is about the church fulfilling the call. I think it's a great place for us to, uh, to begin, uh, I think, at this time in our church's history. Um, don't know if you knew this, the original tax code in 1913, that's kind of when they can say the first time that that the federal income tax was, was codified, was 27 pages long. That was the actual code. Now, if you took all the details, all the amendments, the decisions, the committee meetings and all those things and added it to it, you got 400 pages. That was the whole tax code. In 2013, the code itself was 5,248 pages. That is just the code. That is just the laws. If you take all the additional information, details, amendments, and additions, it's 73,954 pages long. Is it any wonder we have no idea what we're paying in taxes? And and we have no clue, it just somebody says pay that one, okay. And that's what we do. Now, this is not a sermon on the benefits of a flat tax, um, though I I would be okay with that, I'm fine. What this shows us, though, is that we start with, and let's just assume for a moment the federal income taxes was a good idea in 1913. We rarely think taxes are a good idea. I understand that. I'm I'm not trying to get run out on a rail here. Let's just assume it was a good idea. But over time... As new people came along, as, as new uh, people were in charge, as different committees met, they looked at this aspect and that aspect, and then there was a new uh, way to tax people over here. or There was a new uh, area of, of understanding for taxation over on this side. We be- they had to add here and, 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 and figure out how to make that work. But wait a minute, what about these people? And you got those, but this job. But is this job okay, and what do we do? And we go from... 400 pages to 75,000, 73,000 pages. Over time, that happens. In church, it can happen too. And it's necessary for us as a church to not, not to just look at what we do, but look at why we do it. Because the reality is, if you look around this morning, this looks mostly nothing like the church we see in Acts. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing, and that's not what I'm saying this morning. I'm not going to tell you we need to split this up, start meeting in homes, uh, eating lunch together every day, um, no more buildings and those kinds of things. That's not at all what I'm getting at, although some of that sounds good. I'd love to have lunch with you all every day. Uh, That'd be all right. But what we do need to see is how did we get here? Or better yet, what was there at the beginning so we can make sure that where we are here at least matches the fundamental purpose of why it started to begin with? And that's why, what we're going to look at with Acts. Acts gives us both of these things. We can look at what we do and we can look at why we do it. Acts tells us both. The what? And the why. And we'll see that as we move through Acts over the coming months. But read with me Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Now, Acts was written by Luke. This is the sequel to his gospel. Verses 1 through 11 that we're going to look at this morning, they expand and retell Luke 24, 49 through 51. He covered it in just a couple of verses there. Here, in order to introduce the next, uh, the next volume of his history, he's going to go back and expand that a little bit and cover it again. You see this in sequels to movies a lot of times. The, the beginning of the movie reminds you what they talked about, the, the most important parts of the previous movie. And if you don't see it in a sequel of the movie, you definitely see it from week to week watching your, your TV shows. They, last week, on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, and they tell you what happened, and you, oh, that's right, I remember that, oh, okay, now I'm really excited about what's going to happen next. That's what Luke is doing here. The entire book of Acts tells of the fulfillment of the command in Acts eight. Acts 1-8 is a one-verse summary of what the entire book of Acts will tell us. We'll see that here in a few minutes when we get to verse 8. And one other thing we need to understand when we read the book of Acts, it's often called the Acts of the Apostles. It's not about the apostles. It's actually about the work of God. The Acts of the Apostles is kind of a, a bad name, I think, and many scholars do as well. Because it, 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 it glorifies the men more than it glorifies God. And, and it wasn't just the apostles, the original apostles, that did it. It tells about all kinds of people who uh, uh, fulfilled, led to fulfilling the command of Acts 1-8. So a better uh, name, one scholar said, would be The Acts of the Sovereign God through the Lord Messiah Jesus by His Spirit on behalf of the way. Well, that gets a little bit cumbersome. Uh, so we're just going to call it Acts. But that gives you a good idea of, of the whole theme of the book of Acts, and that's what we're going to see as we move through the book of Acts. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me first. In these verses, Jesus proves his right to give the command that he is about to give in Acts 1-8. Luke says, I, I, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He, he acted and he taught with authority, Jesus did. He, 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 and, and, and he's saying, I told you everything in Luke. Everything you needed to know. Now, this is not a comprehensive statement. I told you everything Jesus did because John says at the end of his gospel, look, y'all, if I recorded everything that Jesus did and said, the libraries couldn't hold it. So just let me, this is just the, the high points. This is what you need, and that's what Luke is saying here. But he says everything he began to do. That's an interesting uh interesting verb uh tense usage you would expect luke to say i told you everything jesus did it's not what he said everything jesus began to do so he's telling us those three years of ministry that jesus lived and, and 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 worked among the people that was just the beginning it's not over yet and the disciples get this. They understand, hey, it's not over yet. There's something else that's coming. They're going to ask some questions here in a minute that, that tell us they understood. Okay, this, this, is, this is cool and all, but you know, what's next? It's coming. The orders, uh, Luke is telling us, the, the, and the ability to act on those orders were empowered by the Holy Spirit until the day he was taken up, verse 2, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. So, the, the orders, the actions, both of those things were through the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did everything he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've talked to you before about uh, how Jesus, in human form, chose to willingly, voluntarily set aside the free use of his divine attributes while he was on earth. So that means that Jesus, the man, though he continued to be 100% divine, fully God, never lost his divinity, he was never divided, he was always fully man and fully God. Yet, though, he said, you know what, I'm going to choose not to be able to read everybody's minds all the time. I'm going to choose not to be able to just do miracles whenever I want to. He was led, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit because he chose to set aside those divine attributes. And that's what he's telling them. Everything I did uh, was by the Holy Spirit, or Luke saying everything Jesus did was by the Holy Spirit, and the command to you to do these things as well is by or through the Holy Spirit. And again, just the reminder, it is not about the apostles. It's about the work of God. That's where it came from. Jesus Proved the power of the cross. Look at the, uh, verse 3. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them. It's one thing to just show up and say, hey guys, I'm alive, and then disappear again, but that's not what Jesus did. Jesus proved by many acts, appearing, uh, by many convincing proofs, it says. These were uh, evidences. This, this was like logic. He was using a word here that that didn't allow people to argue and say, well, he didn't, he didn't really come back. No, no, no. These were convincing proofs that would hold up in court that he really did come back. And by coming back, he proved the power of the cross. The power of the resurrection proved the power of the cross. Luke is setting us up, is what he's doing. He, he, he's the, the master storyteller, as as all of our biblical authors were, because they were all inspired by the Holy Spirit. The, the God's word is inerrant throughout. So Luke... Uh, God, through Luke, knew exactly what he was doing. He's setting us up. We're going, yeah, that's exactly right. Jesus did have all that power. Wow, you're right. The, the resurrection just proved the cross. And then Luke's going to say, then why aren't you doing what he said? But, but we'll get to that here in a second. He proved the power of the cross. When Jesus said, I took your sins, he proved it by rising on the third day. Wow, he, 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 he promised that was going to happen. So the stuff that he said would happen on the cross, that must have happened too. And then Luke tells them, after he suffered, he presented himself, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Can you imagine the teaching that occurred over those 40 days? Now, probably didn't start, you know, when he showed up the first morning and he lived with them for 40 days. The the, uh, idea of the words here is that he kind of came and went. I don't know where he went, but he showed up to them at various times and taught. But can you imagine the teaching? They watched him die. They... Uh, he surprised them, though it shouldn't have been a surprise, when he rose from the grave. He shocked them on the road to Emmaus when he sat down and ate with them. He, he shocked them when there was some dude cooking fish on the beach and, and, and Peter realized, hey, that's Jesus, and jumps out of the boat. He, he shows up in the upper room suddenly uh, and, and, and shocks them there. You get an idea of their mindset now, and then for 40 days he teaches them. Can you imagine the disciples' attention span now? I don't think there was any more going to sleep while Jesus prayed. He was there. He he was crucified. He was dead. We know it. He's back. And now he keeps popping up in strange places in our lives and wanting to teach us? Man, I'm listening. I am paying attention to this dude now. He has got me hooked, is what he's saying Incredible teaching over the 40 days. But what, what, did the, what did the disciples do? Well, he commanded them, told them, uh, don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the Father's promise. You've been baptized with water, you're going to be baptized with the Spirit, verses 4, three, four and 5. And what do they do? Verse 6. Uh, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Um, Jesus, can we just completely ta- change the subject of everything you've been teaching us and 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 try to get what we've been expecting for the last three years? Now, let's, let's give them a little bit of, of credit here. If we go back, you can see in verse 3, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. So they're hearing about this kingdom. Of course, this is the message they heard for three years because that was one of Jesus' favorite phrases to discuss how the church would be called out. We talked about that uh, when we looked at uh, living called out in Matthew. So you can kind of understand what they're getting at here, but they miss it. After all he had done, the crucifixion, taking sins, the the resurrection, uh, giving us hope for eternal life, 40 days of teaching, and they say, So, we're going to overthrow Rome now, or what? I mean, that's what they were looking for. They were still looking for a political answer. They were still, after three years and and 40 days of this intense teaching, they they were still wondering, when's when's Israel going to be in charge again? Yeah, he's told them you're you're gonna be you were baptized into John and that's great because that was baptism for repentance. That's absolutely right. But one day the Holy Spirit's gonna baptize you and that is gonna he will baptize you into power. He's gonna talk about that power here in just a minute. And that's just gonna happen in a few days. And they turn around and they I guess want to relate that power to political power. Yes, finally, Israel wins. Make Israel great again. I thought it was funny. So why did, they, why did they have this problem? Why were they struggling with it? Well, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, and Jesus has said, in a few days you'll get it. They were struggling because they just still didn't see it. And if we look back at their history, I mean, look how many times they didn't see it. They weren't expecting him to rise again, even though he said, I'm going to rise again. So it should be no no shock. Our lesson here from the disciples, their question in verses 6 through 7, is basically we don't need to worry about what isn't our business. For them, and Jesus is going to get to this, he said to them in verse 7, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by His own authority. God has a job to do. That's His job. We have a job to do, and and that's our job. And God tells us what our job is, and God decides what His job is. So we don't have to worry about those things that aren't our job. Jesus tells them, the end times, when, when, we're, when, when all that happens, isn't our focus. That's not your concern. I hear, I, I hear church people tell me all the time, and, and if you're one of these that have told me, and, and I kind of just smile and shake my head, and you think, well, you just shrugged me off. Well, okay, yeah. Um, it's not my intention to be rude, but I hear so many people say, well, we're in the end times. Hal Lindsey got us with the book. What was it? 1984? Is that who wrote? No, uh, the late great Planet Earth. That was the one he wrote. And and depending on who you listen to, the, the the world was supposed to end in the 1920s and then 2000 and I'm sure you know 2012 with the Mayan calendar or something and on and on and on and on and on. We just don't know. So folks, quit worrying about it. You know what the Bible says? how the Bible says we're supposed to live? Like he's coming back today. So we don't have to speculate. And I promise you, I I don't have good, hard scriptural evidence for this belief, but this is the way I see it. If you pinpoint a day and pinpoint an hour, I'll even say if you pinpoint the day, and tell me it's going to happen because these things are coming to fruition, I'm going to mark on my calendar, ain't happening today. I just just don't think it's going to work that way. The admonition is to quit worrying and wondering if we're near the end. Quit. We win, okay? We've seen the end of the book. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming. Jesus is coming back. He's about to tell them that here in just a a minute. He's coming back. We're going to win. But quit worrying and wondering why. I mean, do your Bible studies on on Revelation and Daniel and Ezekiel, and and you can tell me if you're uh, premillennial, amillennial, post-tribulation, uh, pre trip mid-trib, that is great. We'll have a conversation about that. But if, if that's your focus, without the focus on the call, because when we get to verse 8, we're going to see, he didn't say, and go ye therefore, and figure out when I'm coming back. He gave a different command. We can have those conversations, but don't get focused on that. That's not our business. We have a mission, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You will receive power. That same Greek word that talks about the power that Jesus had to do miracles. The same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus the Son to perform miracles, is the Holy Spirit that we receive now when we accept Christ. It, it didn't work that way then. The Holy Spirit had a specific time that it, it came. But now we receive the Holy Spirit when we accept Christ. And that power that we have is the same power that empowered Jesus. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Witnesses has kind of a double meaning here. It, it used to mean, or it primarily meant uh, kind of an envoy kind of thing. You will be the one who, who, uh, who stands up and testifies. But it also, for them, meant you were eyewitnesses. You will go and tell people what you saw. You will go and tell people about the 40 days I just spent with you teaching you. You'll go tell people what it was like. Peter, John, to run into the tomb and not see me. You will tell people what it was like to see me hanging on the cross, to say, Father, forgive them, for I don't, they don't know what they're doing, to say, into my ha- thy hands I can bit my spirit, it is finished. You will be the one who says, I saw that. Don't tell me it didn't happen. Don't tell me Jesus didn't die for you. Don't tell me Jesus loves you because I saw it with my own eyes. That is the eyewitness that they would be. And they would be blown away by what would happen. Just wait till we get to Acts chapter 2. And 3,000 people come to Christ because this untrained fisherman given a sermon that is primarily a quotation of a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures. And 3,000 people come to Christ. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. We have the power to do it. We have the, the dynamis, the dunamis, is the word in Greek. We have the power to do it. It is not impossible. Michael, how do we reach the whole world? We don't. We reach our world. We reach where God tells us to go. But it is not impossible. If every church were doing Acts 1-8, Matthew 28, we wouldn't have an issue. We would all be doing our job and we would all be reaching the world reaching our world. But it is not impossible. But they, they, they thought it was impossible. I mean, we use uh, Acts 1-8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, oftentimes to describe political boundaries. And this is the way uh, we've done it. And it's not necessarily a bad way, but it just may not be the most accurate way. We say uh, Jerusalem's our city, so sulfur is our Jerusalem. And we'll say Judea is our state and we'll say we need to reach Louisiana and we'll say Samaria is our country and we'll say we need to reach the US and then we'll say the ends of the earth is everywhere else and we need to reach those and, and that's a great model, it's a good way to think about it. We even think that way as far as our mission boards are concerned. We do local church planting, at least that's what we're supposed to be doing, uh, we help through the Louisiana Baptist Convention to plant churches in other parts of Louisiana. North American Mission Board reaches out to the U.S. and Canada and Mexico. And then we have the International, Board that helps us, uh, International Mission Board that we help and use to reach the ends of the earth. And, and that's okay. But what he actually meant was, if we look at this, we see that Jerusalem is where they killed Jesus. We see that Judea is where the disciples were rejected. We see Samaria as that place where uh, the half-breeds live with the wrong version of Judaism. And then we see the ends of the earth where all the detestable Gentiles live. Totally changes our focus and our view of the Acts 1:8 call. See, our Our call here is not to reach all the locations, but all the people. The people that aren't like us. The people that are like us. The people that reject us. The people who are hostile to us. The people that we don't want to be around. The people that we say aren't worthy of our time, aren't worthy of the gospel. Those are the people Acts one eight is calling us to reach, and then throughout the book of Acts we see the disciples, we see the early church reach those people. Jerusalem is discussed; the reaching of Jerusalem is discussed in chapters one through seven. The reaching of Judea is discussed in chapters eight through twelve, as is the reaching of Samaria and the ends of the earth. We see in verses in chapters thirteen through twenty eight in Acts we see the church begin the process did everybody become a christian no but were these places reached yes and that's our call see there's no border to our gospel advance there's no line that says okay once we've reached everybody in the city limits of sulfur this is not a one then the other than the other even though that's how it worked in acts it worked that way in acts because in acts because it was expanding As the church grew, the church overflowed those borders. But that is not how we're commanded to do it. Once you reach Sulphur, then you can move outside the city limits and start working on your state. And once you reach your whole state, then you move outside the state lines. That's not the way it works. We are to go to those places, to those people that need the gospel. And that means across the street. That means across the world. Both and at the same time. We are called to reach them all. This... Verse, Acts 1-8, is a declaration of a benevolent war, one theologian put it. And I love that image. It is a benevolent war. We are going to war against the principles, uh, principalities and the powers of the air. We're fighting a spiritual battle, and we look like we're invading. But it is with benevolence. It is with the gospel, and we do want to invade with the gospel. That's the call of 1-8. So they ask the question, time for a new kingdom? And Jesus says, yeah, but not what you think. Time for my kingdom to expand. Time for you to take the gospel to those that you would never talk to. Acts is going to talk about, wait, really? Gentiles get the gospel too? Whoa. And we think of Paul as the Gentile missionary, Peter was the first one that took the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter, who got into a discussion, got, got kind of chewed up about a little bit about the fact that he wasn't sitting with some people that he should have been sitting with at church. When church came around, now, yeah, I talked to them during the week, but when certain people are at church, well, I ignore those people and then talk to somebody else. Peter was the first one to take it to the Gentiles. We'll talk about that in a minute, or in a, in a few weeks. 9 through 11, what are you waiting on? Verses 9 through 11, what are you waiting on? After he said this, in verse 9, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. That cloud is uh, reminiscent of the cloud that was there at his transfiguration when Moses and Elijah showed up. It's, it's uh, uh, reminiscent of the cloud that led Israel by day through uh, uh, through through the, the wilderness, and for those 40 years, and, and became a, a, you can't see a cloud at night, so this flame burned up in the midst of the cloud during the, the, during the evening. This, this cloud came and enveloped Jesus somehow. And then we're going to find out that, and we read Revelation and we see other places, where he's coming back in the clouds. So this cloud is kind of that uh, don't want to take it too far from what the Scripture says, but that becomes an image for us of, of the Holy Spirit doing these things, taking Him, empowering Him, then falling on us and uh, empowering us too. So they see, he, says, uh, he says these things while they're watching. The cloud took Him, and what do they do? Staring at a new gate, right? What? Awkward, isn't it, me standing up here and no noise? Probably awkward then, too. Just, just one. Is that it? Is it over? It's, it's kind of like the Marvel movies when the credits are done, are you sure? You sure there's not something else right up? We're gonna sit here for just a second. Yeah, they're sweeping, lights are on, but no, you never know with the Marvel movie. That that's almost like what they were doing. And again, can you blame them? I mean, he 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 died, he came back, he showed up all these times teaching, now he's gone. Hold on, y'all. He he could show up again. And then these two guys do. Two men in white clothes, they knew who it was. They show up and they said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring up into heaven? He's, he's gone. He's gone. But, but he's coming back. There's, there's a fulfillment of the mission. There's more to do. And for right now, y'all have a job to do. See, it's easy to get trapped by our amazement with Jesus. It's easy to be trapped and and be comfortable in our relationship with him and say, this is great. Church is wonderful. I love coming up here to Bible study. I love spending time with believers. These are my people. These are who I want to be with. Let's do this all the time. And the angels say, no. Why do you sit here talking amongst yourselves about what Jesus meant to go out and reach people? Instead, you should be out reaching people. I've used this example before. Uh, two, a preacher by the name of Francis Chan said, if, you know, if I tell my daughter to go clean up her room and an hour later go back and see that she hasn't touched a thing in her room, ask why. And she says, well, I, I ha- called one of my friends, and, and she came over, and for the last hour, we've been discussing what you meant by clean your room. We've been looking at all the different ways we could clean and what you meant by clean.'" clean could mean straighten, clean could mean disinfect, clean could mean mop all these things, and room, what is our room? Does that mean the closet too? Does that mean the hallway outside the room? Does that mean only the part of the room I usually live in? So what is room, dad? And he says no, just clean your room clean your room that's what we do with God He said, go to the nations, and we say, well, what do you mean by go, God? Does that mean we have to leave our home, or can we write a check to the International Mission Board and see my money is going? That works, right? And the world, does that mean right here in Sulphur? We discuss all these things, and the angels are saying, what are you doing? Do what he said. We have a job to do, and we have the message that the world needs. And the book of Acts tells us how the church realized that. Again, it's going to take them a while. They had a lot of things to work through, but they realized it. The message, see, changed them. Therefore, they knew the message could change the world. My question, or my statement to you is, when the message changes us, we can change the world. When we are truly changed by the message, we can truly change the world. Skeptic by the name of David Hume uh, lived in the, uh, the 1700s, philosopher. I, had, I don't remember what he was famous for. Um, uh, it has something to do with a pool table. That's about all I can remember from the philosophy class that I took uh, where we talked about him. He was on, to see, on his way to see evangelist George Whitfield preach. And somebody stopped him and said, Whoa, 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 Dr. Hume, I, I thought you didn't believe in the gospel. And Hume's response was, I do not, but he does. Talking about Whitfield. He was going to see the passion of this fiery evangelist. This man who would speak to thousands and could be heard in the back row with no amplification and preach to there's no telling how many and was one of the reasons for the first great awakening in America. Him, Jonathan Edwards, um, Wesley, John. John Wesley, those were the, 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 the catalysts For the first great awakening, the message had changed him. Therefore, when he preached the message, he knew the message would change other people. And they saw it. Skeptics saw it. They wanted to go see Whitfield because, I don't believe the gospel, but he does. I need to hear. I want to hear about this. The question this morning, church as we look at what the church in the, in the New Testament did, as we look at the church in Acts, the question we have to ask, as they lived the message that had changed them, we have to ask the question of ourselves, has the message changed you? Has it? Has it led to a change in your life? Has it led to a difference that you're making in other people? Are you going to your Jerusalem? Not your city necessarily, but the people that know you the best and will reject you the quickest. Your your Judea, where you grew up, where everybody knows what you were. Oh, that's old so and so. He's got Jesus now, but I remember he didn't have Jesus. He had liquor and women, but he didn't have Jesus. You know that that's the place that they were having to go to. They're Samaria, has the message changed you enough that you can go to the people that you consider a lot less than you? People that you would call, for whatever reason, a a half-breed because they're, they're just not like us? They don't believe the way we do? Has it changed you enough that you would go to the people that you consider, like the ends of the world, the Gentiles, the scum of the earth. People you would never associate with. They might even kill you if you tried. Has the message changed you? As we look back at the early church, that's the question we have to ask. As we see what they did, we look back and say, are we there? Are we, do we have the same intensity? Do we have the same desire Do we see the need the way they saw the need? That's the question. This morning, though, my question for you is not has it changed you necessarily. I'm changing the tone of the question. Let me put it this way. Not believer, has the message changed you so that you're willing to take the gospel to other places. Now I'm going to turn the the question to those who aren't sure they're changed at all. Has the gospel changed you at all? That's my question for some of you this morning. Have you believed? Have you trusted Christ for your salvation? See, that's the message that changes us. I'm a believer. I want to take that message to other people because I know that that message has changed me. It hasn't made me a better person, I mean, it has. That's not why. I, I, it's not a self help thing. It's not, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I eat my fiber and I got Jesus, so everything's going okay now. Uh, it, it, that's not what Jesus is. That's not the change we're talking about. Has the message changed you from the inside out, taken a heart of stone and made it a heart of flesh, made you, taken you from being an enemy of God to God's child? That's the question this morning. Has the message changed you? Michael, what do, you, what do you mean, change me? Well, we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all doomed to hell because of that. We are all sinners by nature, and we're all sinners by choice, and there's nothing we can do to get out of that. My question for you is, do you want to fix that? Yeah, Michael, I don't, I don't think I like those things. That's great. You can't do it on your own. If you're trusting in your works, if you're trusting in your own ability, it cannot happen. You will fail, and you will fail repeatedly. It'll look good today, but tomorrow it comes back. And then you're wondering at the end of your life, did my good balance outweigh my bad balance? Am I all right? How am I doing here? Well, I hope when I get there everything works out okay. We don't have to do that. We can have assurance. Our sins are real, our sins are prevalent, and they result in death. But there's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This offer of salvation is a command to repent and believe. So what will you do with that offer? What will you do with that command? If you don't believe it, Luke just said, I told you what he did. I told you that he died on the cross. God proved his own love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Luke says, I told you the rest of it too. I told you how he rose from the dead. I told you how he proved that what he said would happen on the cross happened because he showed up three days later alive and said, "Mm, Told you. Everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. The the Samaritan, the Jew, the Gentile, the, the Muslim... Hindu, the Buddhist, the atheist. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who repents and places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. That's a promise. Paul goes on to say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is for you, it is for me. I will ask you one more time. Has the message changed you? You've heard the message of the gospel this morning. I pray that you respond to the Holy Spirit's working on your heart. You can only come to the Father if the Holy Spirit draws you. This morning, if you've heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit is working on your heart. Do not reject it. Do not walk out of here this morning and say, well, maybe next week. You're not guaranteed next week. This morning, I beg you to repent trust Christ, and find salvation in Him and only Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have set a road map. You have shown us what we as a church are to be about. You have proven to us that by Your Son, through Your Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that everything You said is true. So God, when we look at Acts and, and it says to, uh, that the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon us and we will be your witnesses, the command to be your witnesses, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Lord, that we can go forward in confidence and in power, knowing that you go with us, that the gospel we take is powerful enough to overcome our, uh, our inabilities, our insufficiencies, because there is no inability or insufficiency in the gospel. Lord, thank you for that command. Thank you for that assurance as a church. God, thank you this morning that you gave a message that changes us. The message of the cross. The message of the resurrection. The power of the forgiveness of sins. The ability to fall on our face, come before you, repent of those sins, to place our faith in Jesus Christ, and for you to say, welcome, my child, for you to adopt us, to graft us into your family. God, thank you for that message this morning. I pray for hearts within the sound of my voice that they will respond to that call. They would feel the Holy Spirit leading this morning. And they would say, I want to know more about this this heart change, this, 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 this Jesus that you talk about, this salvation. Lord, may they respond in faith today. In Jesus' name I pray. So, how should you respond this morning? Maybe you need to trust Christ. You want to come and talk to me, have me pray with you about that decision. The prayer doesn't save you. Walking this aisle doesn't save you. Even being baptized doesn't save you. Your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ saves you. Maybe you need to be baptized. You've trusted Him, but you need to follow in obedience. Maybe you have decisions you need to make. God's calling you to certain things, and you've not been obedient. There are things in your life you need to get straight with God. These padded rails up here are an opportunity for you to come and bow before him i pray that you would take advantage of them maybe you want me to pray with you whatever your decision is this morning i pray that you would make it that you would not put it off that as we stand and we sing this morning you would do business with god